Welcome to the Shining Mind podcast. I'm Dr. Selena Bartlett. I'm a neuroscientist and I'm your host. And today we've got really something really terrific and exciting here with Dr. Fiona Simpson. And she's going to introduce herself. She's a remarkable scientist helping all of us understand and treat cancer in a better, different way. And she's just done this remarkable thing that I just have to, she won't like this, but because she's uh, shy, but. She just created and raised money for this scholarship fund to allow kids to come here and experience science at a completely very deep, meaningful level and give people opportunities that are performing really well in school but would normally not get that opportunity. So I just have to say, can we keep doing that fund? So I'm putting that out there. So we're going to put that in the show notes and create, keep that scholarship fund growing bigger because this really matters to Queensland and to Australia and to other places to give everyone the same opportunity that people that get all those opportunities get automatically. So I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Fiona, and thank you, um, everyone, for putting your best effort forward under very difficult circumstances some days, I'm sure, and uh, being here and being come interesting and interested in science. So thank you, Fiona. Now it's your turn to introduce yourself. Um, so hi, I'm Fiona. I give everybody a moment to tune into the Scottish accent. Um, I was born in Australia, brought up on the very north coast of Scotland. I'm a research scientist at the University of Queensland Diamantina Institute. And um, we do translational science now. We've swapped from 25 years of very basic cell biology to actually translating that to um, fixes for drug resistance in cancer patients. So which cancers are you studying again? So we started with head and neck cancer, but the project that we do is to improve the response of something called an antibody like your immune system makes, but you just inject them straight as so antibodies into people. So this is different to antibiotics, it's yeah. your own system. Yeah, these are antibodies. Um, so we actually make antibodies and put these into cancer patients. And so our work was to change the resistance to these antibody drugs in head and neck cancer. Except when we worked out the way that that works and the principles of it, it turns out that it can apply to different antibodies and different cancers. So we are applying it to head and neck cancer, we're applying it to HER2 positive breast cancer, to triple negative breast cancer, to adenoid cystic carcinoma, to melanoma, um, basically any cancer that has a certain kind of antibody treating it, we can help reverse the resistance. Wow, that's fantastic, isn't it? We're really making, well, not me, but you guys are really making fantastic advances in this area. So can you tell the audience a little bit about your background? Because it's pretty extraordinary. Did you, ever, <laughs> did you really think you were going to be a cancer scientist, Dr. Simpson? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I grew up in a fishing and farming community in the north coast of Scotland. Um, I was quite good at school. But when I was 10 years old... Um, my dad, who was my total hero and a master joiner, um, passed away suddenly. And um, my mother got really bad clinical depression. My older sister left home and went to university to study English. And um, so I started working full time at the age of 12 through the night. What were um, you doing? I was actually, I started in a local petrol station serving in petrol gas in the gas station but at the time um at 12 yeah and at the time people didn't serve their own petrol you had to go and serve everybody 
So I remember those days. I'd hit two o'clock in the morning and I'd have to put thousands of pounds down the safe at night on my own and lock up. And then I'd walk up the hill to our house and I was out of my head on petrol fumes. I used to stand in the shower on the way home and I was just just trashed. So what made you do that particular job? Uh, they gave me the job and we needed the money to pay the electricity bills. <laughs> That's amazing and story. It was a job that you could do outside of school hours. Um, about two but then years. Get, then you'd get home and go to school. Oh yeah, and about two, and I kept our garden, our allotment, grew the potatoes and peas and things in the back, and I looked after my younger sister in the house. Um, I lost my job at the petrol station because the insurance company found out that somebody my age was putting the money down the till at night. Um. So then I got... How did they find that out? Oh, they'd obviously just come up to check something and realise that... It's one of the people you were serving. Yeah, probably. Um, so I lost my job there. So then I had um, three jobs at once where I was washing dishes in one of the local hotels and I was working in the news agents um, at the weekends, doing the newspapers and things. Um, and I had a couple of cleaning jobs. Um, and how was your mum through all of this? She always looked after the house because Highland women do, and she, um, so she had to live on a widow's pension, which is the pension my dad would have got cut in half. So it was really hard, and he'd been in the middle of fixing up the house, and the month before he passed away suddenly, he'd missed an insurance payment. And so all of that didn't come through. So she was a mum and she looked after our food and the house. Um, But most nights I'd come home and she'd be sitting in a chair in the corner of the kitchen crying. Um, There was a really weird effect in our community where um, when she'd lost her husband, she seemed to become a threat to other women and their partnerships. In this this time, I mean, it's still like that now in yeah, some ways, but yeah. back then it would have been extraordinary. So other women cut her off. People didn't ask her out to events anymore. And she and my dad had been really social. They'd been ballroom dancers. They used to go to badminton. My dad was full of life. Um, so she really got to a point where the four, being stuck in these four walls was killing her. I remember saying that. Um, I didn't fully understand at the time because this was between the ages of 12 and 15. Um, I also couldn't understand why nobody helped us <laughs> and why none of the adults talked. Um, nobody ever once talked to me about my dad dying. They just expected you to. And the only thing I was told was, you have to be strong for your mum now. And that was it. That was the whole discussion about and Crazy. So at that time, nobody ever talked about anything. People now get grief counselling and all the rest of it. We were never told anything. You no, know, we just had to suck it up and yeah. move on. Yeah. <laughs> one but maybe that's why you're resilient. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, um, so did it ever, like, just to project a bit forward before we go back on mm. how you became a scientist, which is amazing. Um, did it ever have a consequence for you eventually? Did it ever catch up with you, all of that? Yeah, yes. About 15, I was exhausted with working in school. I was still getting straight A's at school. Wow. Um, it was a place where when you walked out the back now gate... Now I feel really lazy. Um, when you walked out the back gate of school with an A, somebody would meet you and beat you up physically. So I used to take a kicking all the time for being bright. Um Everything was really dark and I got really, really angry and I got into a lot of trouble. I started doing drugs, I started sleeping around, I got pregnant and had a miscarriage at 15. Um, At the time, the doctor said I was very lucky and I should go away and think about what I'd done to my mother. That was the entire counselling. This is the miscarriage counselling. Yeah, yeah, this is the entire counselling I got about that. Go and think about what you did to your mother. I was horrendously angry with the world. I was a complete rebel. Um, So I eventually got pulled up at school and said, 
they said, Fiona, we don't know what to do with you. You're doing everything right. You're winning all our school competitions. I was an elite gymnast. I was playing with the Strasbourg Real Society, the fiddle and accordion. Great. So, so you're using all your intelligence yeah. to kind of yeah. get rid I was of the a debating, debating champion as well. Um, but at the same time, I did everything wrong. And at this point, I'd hit somebody over the back of the head with a chair in my English <laughs> class. You did? Oh, my school was incredibly rough. We gave seven of our first year high school teachers nervous breakdowns. Are you serious? My you class hit someone on the back. I just can't even oh, picture it. Look, my Can class threw. They got into trouble for throwing our geography rock collection off the fourth floor, and the teacher who gave them into trouble, they threw them off. This was like really rough school. <laughs> People talk about. I mean, these these um, students that are with me now are from Woodridge State High in Logan, which is supposed to be a low socioeconomic school, and everybody believes it's this terrible trouble place. And I've been to that school, and I think it's lovely compared to my high school. I'd have paid to go there. Um, so, yeah, the whole thing was just a survival mission, and I was angry. And I was being an adult from the age of 12 looking after everything, but nobody treated me as an adult, and I had no control and no transport. So to be an adult without being able to be an adult and to have the responsibility without having the control is a really bad position to be in um so about what sort of drugs were they taking oh uh, was it mainly alcohol and no and we used to be a really big inlet from holland for hash oh. and so we used to get gold seal and red seal hash in through and um yeah i eventually by the time i finished high school had um developed through that process to heroin um and it was actually the vets in Thursday who rescued me. So about 15 after my miscarriage and the talk with the teacher nearly getting expelled, one of my teachers, who wasn't actually my teacher, she was just a high school English teacher, Miss Mackenzie, went to the local vets and said, I've got this girl. She's really, really bright, but she's just in so much trouble. Take her into the vets. And the vets took me in like I was a stray cat off the street. And I worked with them every single night and every weekend. And the animals would be so healing. Yeah. And not just that, we drove out to the west coast of Scotland constantly. And I loved it out there. It's the most beautiful place. It's mountains, it's sea. There are no people out there. And we spent all our time with very old crofters doing their thing out in the country. And I loved it I was happy there and so I decided I wanted to be a vet and so I dropped absolutely everything negative and started trying my hardest to get the grades that you needed to get into vet school wow did you hear that that's I just want to cry <laughs> that's um, just so beautiful I just yeah, that's just so beautiful I just love I just love there's just some people in this world that just do things. No one's telling them to do it. No one's praising them. They're not getting awards. Like, I'm just thinking of the people in the vets. Oh, the vets were amazing. They taught me so much. They put me in the microscopes. They let me do the anesthesia for the surgeries. It was just amazing. The other person, so this though. this is the point, right? It can just be one yeah. thing. One thing. That we just need one mentor, one person to step in, and it changes the trajectory of so many distressed people. People don't realise their positive actions. There was one gentleman, his name's Ian McGregor. There was a night that I walked out of my house and I was walking towards the 200 metre cliffs because I'd have enough and I was going to step off the cliffs. And at the time I was a smoker, and there's a lane along the back of the houses. And there was a place that I could hide my smoking, which turned out to be behind Ian McGregor's shed. And he heard me having my cigarette and sobbing. He just happened to be in the shed that night. And he came out and he got me and he didn't say anything and he didn't ask me what was wrong. He said, come here. You know my wife Isabel, she teaches um, the deaf kids in the area. Come in, I want to show you something. 
and he didn't say anything about the state I was in or anything else. He took me to the attic of the house and he showed me this museum he built. He'd collected all the old history of the Highlands, like rocks and coins, and his entire attic of this house was a museum. And he just took me through each thing in the museum and it was absolutely fascinating. And by the time I left, <laughs> you were happy. I was happy and I'd forgotten I was heading to the cliffs to kill myself. And I went back home and carried on. This is what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting how, like, the, how yeah. it just can... Four weeks ago, I was actually back in the Highlands and I went down to see him and find him, told him what we were doing now and pointed out to him that none of it would have happened if he hadn't taken me out from the shed that night. It's so true. It's just, it's, and each of us have that same capacity. Mm. And now we have these platforms too that pe we can actually project this globally. That's mm. what I love about the new world. I know it's got some problems on the social media, but we can also use it for good. Because you, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing, because not, pe not many people are brave to share these stories too. But that sharing is what I'm noticing is making huge impact on so many people. Because they're, they can't tell anyone necessarily, yeah. but they can listen into a podcast and no one knows what they're listening to, you know. And it's just so – and your story is not one in a million. It's, it's no. more like one in ten. It's everywhere. Or it's everywhere and everyone is struggling in different ways with different things, right? And some yeah. are more worse than others. That's what I see. I still, even now, I think because of my age, have times when I walk along and think, just nobody cares and you feel like that sometimes especially when you're at the really hard times and you're battling but as you go through life what you get is a memory of the people who, who did care the vets the Ian McGregor's the teacher who said get her off the street <laughs> because she but the important so thing was three they say about four right. is really she good. thought I was smart enough to rescue that was really important to me Somebody actually cared enough to go out of their way to make something yeah. happen, and that makes all the yeah. difference. Well, that's why you running raising the scholarship fund, right? That's yeah. like one, two, three, four. You know, that's eight per year. That's that's a huge. Yeah. And then that that eight can become sixty four because each per each one of those eights have the same capacity to just rescue that one person mm. by just smiling at them, right? So one of the first scholars in the Woodridge program five years ago, Gilbert Mufasa, um, he's actually at QUT now studying medicine and he's the ambassador for their scholarship access oh, program. Yes. And so what you find is... And, and yeah, the Learning Potential Fund is really amazing. The Learning Potential Fund. Uh, um, yeah. Ways to get to QUT on a scholarship. So Gilbert's involved in that. And so what you find is especially if people are that as desperate as I was, that as you help them get out of that system, then once they make it, they remember and they come back and they help other people up. And it's a and positive that, feedback yeah, loop that spreads. The lived experience um, mentoring is having a huge impact in the Indigenous community in Sydney as well, where people have been in detention or have had terrible experiences, but they've come back and now they work for Google. Like had these terrible experiences somehow, whatever, I don't know their internal story mm. yet, but I'm going to find out. <laughs> um, and, and now they're trying to create internships in Google and Sydney and places like that and see and show people that hope and that inspiration to direct, just like you're doing right now. So um, then, so you said, I'm going to be a vet. This is really <laughs> cool, right? Cause, and animals, by the way, if you're ever feeling like, like no one's there mm. for you, the brain loves feeling lonely sometimes. It can take you there very easily and then you can get stuck there. But the one thing to help out is animals too, yeah. if you love animals. You can just hold an animal and it has the same effect with oxytocin release and um, you know serotonin release and endorphin release. It can be even a fish in a tank. And I'm sure you saw this in the vets that you worked oh, in. Oh, look, too. I've got a new puppy yeah. <laughs> in oh, the middle of it. What did you get? He's a Border Collie Labrador oh, cross. <laughs> they need a lot of running. Yeah, but he's just gorgeous. Yeah, um, what's his? Dusk. Dusk. <laughs> That's a cute name. Dusk um, is an important time of the day. So, look, even then, I went to the universities. My grades weren't great. Um, I'd done well, but in Scotland at the time, you needed, you were allowed to sit five higher exams 
to get into vet school you needed six A stars. So you needed to do an extra subject over what was allowable and get A stars because they only took a few Scottish students, the rest were international for the fees the vet school needed. Um, so I went to Glasgow University and the interview woman there was horrible to me. She heard my grades, she said, well, you've got no bloody chance. And then she turned immediately to the student behind me and said, oh, I recognise you. Doesn't your daddy have that horse practice down in Surrey? And that was it. That was my interview at Glasgow University. So I left howling in tears. And the same teacher, Heather McKenzie, got me, worked out what was wrong with me. And she spoke to Edinburgh University Vet School before I got to the interview point and told them what had happened. So they were absolutely lovely to me, told me I wasn't competitive enough to get into vet school. But if I did a degree in biochemistry, then they'd see about letting me have a place. So I did a degree in biochemistry in Edinburgh. I had to pay my own way through with a government grant. And in Scotland, all the student university fees are paid by the government. Otherwise, I'd have never have gone to university. Um, but the living fees don't actually cover your living expenses. So I worked full-time in the pubs in Edinburgh through the night. I used to work till five o'clock in the morning and then go to uni at nine o'clock in the morning, do a full nine to five science degree and then go back to the pub. And in the holidays, I used to work in the pub and a convent. So I'd go to what the convent. What were you doing in the convent? It was a nursing home for old priests because priests have no families to look after them when they get old. Except the nuns. So the nuns look after them. And who looks after the nuns? Me. <laughs> so we Isn't used to have, that the way? Um, so I used to go in there about um, five o'clock in the morning, peel potatoes, scrub floors, change beds, do all that thing. And then about five o'clock in the afternoon, I'd go to the pub and I'd work until about two, three in the morning. And then I'd go back to the convent. So where, where's the sleeping happening here? Oh, I had two hours in the afternoon and I had two hours in the middle of the night to sleep for 16 you weeks. You have to have had a meltdown at some point. No, no, because it actually paid my way through the university and, and let me get through. On four hours sleep. Okay. Yeah, that was fine. I still don't sleep very much. <laughs> wow, um, really? So... Anyway, I did so much for that whole um, hypothesis about sleeping detoxifies your brain. Um, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> we haven't got that right, have um, we? I loved science. The other thing for me was that the people I was now with were like me, and it's the first time I'd been with people like me, and I loved it. Um, and I went to go to vet school after I finished my degree, but I realised that I was actually a scientist and not a vet. Because you're curious about yeah, why they're yeah. saying that, and in I the wanted textbook. to know the reasons and why everything worked. And so I realised I wasn't going to treat standard of care. I was going to find out how to treat the things that they couldn't treat. And I went on a series of interviews, and I got offered a PhD place at the University of Cambridge. Wow, that's and amazing! So I so you end, must have done really well. Yeah, and. Cambridge. That's really hard to get um, into, by the way. In the Department of Clinical Biochemistry, which was really famous at the time. Now, who was in there? Oh, there was Nick Hales, who had done all the diabetes discoveries, and Paul Luzio, and he was also the master St. Edmunds College. And that was... I went down for my interviews at Cambridge, and I got to stay at St. Edmunds because Paul was the master, and they were having their Christmas talent contest. And, oh, my goodness, I watched that talent contest, and these people were amazing. There was, like, one girl who sang the Carly Simon song, You're So Vain. It was like Carly Simon was sitting there. They just were so talented, and I thought, oh, I can't come here. And they were all from really private schools, very wealthy backgrounds, and I just thought, I just can't come here. But Margaret Scott Robinson, who's one of the most famous women in science in Europe, and also voted nicest scientist in Europe, offered me a place in her lab, and I went paid by the Wellcome Trust. So what were you doing in her lab? So my project was to look at these things called adapter proteins. Oh. So they're in What the, are they called now? <laughs> yeah, they're still adapter proteins, but they're in your cells and they move things around. It's like the train station inside your cells. And I ended up through my PhD discovering the entire pathway that makes melanosomes, which is what gives your eyes colour and your hair colour. 
And then we found all these mutants, and it turned into the whole pathway for tyrosinase, which is the whole of melanoma research now. So I published two papers in a really good journal at the time, Journal of Cell Biology. I had the front covers of them. Wow, congratulations. And That's huge. This each, is during your PhD. Yeah, each paper's got about 250, 300, 300 citations each, which is massive. And the average citation in my field is about two to three per paper, and these have got like 300. And that means that people are following the work and doing it in their labs yeah. and then citing it when they publish it. A whole work. field was built in those papers, actually. It was great. Scotty was amazing. I still, every Christmas, we get a Christmas card from Scotty. It's for 25 years, and the whole lab talk to her and see what's happening, and she tells the whole what lab. What does she call She's called Scotty. Margaret Scott Robinson, Scotty. And Beam she, me up, Scotty. Yeah, she's Everybody that's ever been in her lab still knows what everybody's doing that was in the lab because we all coordinate through, through Scotty. She's like so your big amazing. sister. She was amazing. And I learned so much there. I learned not just about science. I learned about art, about astronomy, about opera. We went to dinner at the Master's College. I learned how to be posh. I learned how, 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 to, how to be a little elegant, so now if anybody snobs me, I can totally out-snob them back, um, and it's really fun to do. So give me an example of what you do. Oh, I love that. <laughs> this is the Australian coming out now. <laughs> Look, I dress in jeans, often with holes in them, and trainers, and you know, various people kind of look me up and down, and, and they'll talk and make some comment, and I'll let them talk, and then eventually they'll turn around and say, oh, and... and and what is it you do? And I say, oh, I'm a research scientist. And they go, oh, 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 really, a student? You're like, no, no, Dr. Simpson. And you can watch their faces change because they've made this judgment of you and you've just let them carry on. And then they're like, oh, oh, so you've done a PhD. Then where did you do that? You know, Warwick or somewhere. And you go, oh, actually, I was at the University of Cambridge. <laughs> and... You just watch their faces go, and you can see that they've gone. I've had people come to posters, talk in front of it as if I'm like the student, and they say all these things, and then eventually they work out that I'm actually me, and it's really funny watching the changes in the face because that image judgment that they've made turns out to be completely wrong, and it's more fun to just let them carry on. And let them work it out for themselves. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're going to get to Fiona Goes to California. So I, I was running a research lab at uh, University of California, San Francisco for 12 years. Mm. And I'd, I'd been developing drugs. I'm a pharmacist too. So I, I had that focus. And I'd walk into a room like this for business meetings because we'd be doing you know, with drug development. And, and not joking, I think I was the only woman there. But they'd all turn to me and say, do you mind getting me a cup of coffee? coffee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, oh. go, I go, would you get me one? <laughs> Actually, I, I had a really funny one of those recently where we've got these technologies and patents and I've been working with this company and some people representing my side and some people representing their side were meeting up in Sydney. And we went to this meeting and they all, my side told me how I was supposed to behave and to let them do the talking and rah, rah, rah. And the other side immediately assumed that the very senior male professor with me was the person to talk to, even though he'd only been here for two weeks. And so they all chatted to each other, but the global head of medicine at this company hadn't arrived. And when he arrived, it was hilarious, because I've been interacting with them for 10 years. So I've just been sitting there very quietly, fetching their coffees from the thing. And he walks in, and the first thing he went oh my God, Fiona, it's so good to see you. And he wraps me up in this huge bear hug and you could watch every single one of their faces just go, oh, we misjudged that. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's better just to sit there and let people bury themselves in their assumptions. It's really funny. Yeah, don't take it personally. Just take a little step back and have a really good giggle. <laughs> yeah, it's really it really funny. cracks me up now. Um, it really cracks me up. Um, it it doesn't end, especially it's actually quite especially good if you too. like to especially if you like to wear dresses and have blonde hair. Yeah, too. absolutely. And look, I, jeans and trainers never help. But no. I also feel that it's really good to be. Or in just being you. Right? Yeah, it's really good to be in stealth mode. 
Because if people don't know who you are, you find out a whole lot before they work out who you are. And so I actually call it stealth mode now. I find out, and if people have judged me like that and they're not taking me as what I am. Don't tell anyone how smart you are. <laughs> but then immediately you know what kind of person they are. And so it's actually not that they've misjudged you, it's that you've been able to very quickly judge them. And you know who to trust. Yeah. That's such yeah. a big lesson in life. Because mm -hmm. you only want to be around people who are real that have have your back. Yeah. And that's and it doesn't matter if it's a small number, but it's worth finding that out quickly. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Especially when you're trying to collaborate and work uh, with people because you want to be able to trust what they're doing too, right? You want to yeah. forge relationships and collaborations with people that you really trust. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we've got to get from Cambridge um, and <laughs> California. That, and then obviously what you did in Cambridge would have set you really on a big, huge path to getting great jobs, I imagine. Yeah, it was amazing because I got to go as the only PhD student. So are you pinching yourself the whole way along this little oh, yeah. journey from getting thrown out in yeah. the streets? And, <laughs> the and now Gordon you're in Cambridge yeah. at um, some... I Fancy to, college. Yeah, I got to go to the Gordon Conference. I was the only PhD student there. and That's the, amazing. Gordon yeah. Conference is a very, very small, elite, invitation-only scientific conference. Right? Yeah, and the people there were the absolute global leads of what we did. And I was just in heaven. Um, I do have to say that's where one of my mentoring relationships started because um, there was a Scots gentleman who worked at UCSF there called Reg Kelly. Oh, yes. I know and that. I taught him how to play pool. And we actually bought one against two other very senior scientists. And Reg was so happy at the end of it. He grabbed me and he kissed me and he was like really celebrating. I thought, oh my God, Reg Kelly, he was a hero at the time. Um, later, he became my mentor. Um, when I went to the California, he was at UCSF, I was down in San Diego at Scripps. Um, these days he's the Chancellor of UCSF and he runs the entire Bio 21 development park in San Francisco. Um, so we met over a game of pool. <laughs> Teaching so that's why pool. I always, always say yes. You know when you want to say no to things, sometimes you just want to go back to your room because you're feeling a bit shy. Put yourself out there trying to teach my daughter this. She's in college in San Diego right now. Right. She's just new and you know, I'm saying just go and put yourself out there. You know, when you're feeling a bit like no one cares for you or whatever, just go and make yourself do things that you don't want to do. I call it say yes to your normal no and just see what happens, right? Mm, yeah. It's a miracle what yeah. can happen from that. Yeah. Um. So I got a Welcome Trust Prize Traveling Fellowship, which was the best fellowship is on everyone the planet at the time. Is anyone, is anyone letting this story sink into their brain? It's like, it's hard to let, like, I just have to get in your shoes and think, like, I guess for me that's amazing. Because mm. if you knew how hard, what she's talking about is like a walk in the park. It sounds like, oh, yeah, I, I, I was addicted to heroin and then I got a Welcome Trust Traveling Fellowship. And I discovered the whole pathway of this inside self. That sounds like. That's what you normally do. Uh -huh. But even people that have the best of all possible scenarios, it's almost yeah. impossible to get one of those welcome traveling trusts, yeah. let alone make that discovery in their PhD. I think the year I got it, there were three on the planet that come back. Yeah. So anyway, I got one of those. <laughs> and I, I went to, to the Scripps Research Institute and I worked for Sandra Schmidt, who called herself Sandy. So there's a common theme Scotty there. And Sandy. Margaret Scott Robinson, who was Scotty, and Sandra Schmidt, who was called Sandy, because for some reason, women in science at the time, it was helpful to masculinize. Their nicknames were always masculinized. I didn't know that. Um, so Sandy Schmidt was one of the highest performing women in science ever, still is. She has like 20 nature papers, 20 science papers. She's an absolute machine. She writes NIH documents and supporting women in science. She's a powerhouse. So Scotty was kind of like her mum, and she was great and a brilliant scientist. Sandy was a brilliant scientist who was like a business machine, and she taught us a lot about professionalism as well as science, and she just let us go. What um, were you working on there? So again, I was working that cell trafficking railway 
pathway kind of thing. So just a basic biology. Yeah, basic like looking biology. At how your cells actually work, not focusing yeah. on disease. No, not yeah. on disease at all. Um, but that lab, the women there, Hannah Donkey published amazing papers, and um, Sanya Siever got a nature nature paper. What were um, they about? Just so all about how cells move things off the surface into the cell. Um, so Sanya got a nature paper, I published in Nature Cell Biology, these are top journals in the world. Um, people sometimes say, oh, it's because you were in those labs that no, you got those papers. They always say that when we come back here. No, no, no. Well, how? We, you know, Sandy was on talking tours for three months of the year. We had to come up with our own ideas, do our own work and get the papers out. Um, it wasn't that it was easier to do in those labs, it's that the environment that you were in so we had 15 postdocs, all with prize international fellowships in that lab. And we all talked to each other. And we used to argue science, I mean, really argue, like yelling at each other. We were all best friends. But when it came to science and the whiteboard, it was all on. And everybody just produced these amazing results because of that environment. The environment um, is so important. We all can, also and had... And you can create your own environments, even if you don't get access to science. Yeah. The other reason we all publish so well is every single one of us got pregnant in that lab. Um, so Sandy always... Uh, now how is that possible? Well, it meant a pause in our work. But what it also means is women who are as competitive as us and on those fellowships make sure they get really good publications before they go on maternity leave. So I feel it might be a really good strategy in Sandy's part, and it's why she gets so many science and nature papers, is because she's got so many pregnant women desperately getting their papers out. Um, the scripts was really great because we had a daycare across the road. So there was a tunnel under the freeway so we could put our experiments on for an hour's incubation. We could walk across, feed our babies, walk back again, carry on with the experiments. So we lived at work with our babies. Um, and that was really supportive wow, and worked really that's well. Amazing. Um, that's when I kind of had a hitch because um, I got a phone call from my mum. I'd phoned her to tell her I was six weeks pregnant with my daughter Rachel, who's now 21. And mum told me that she'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer and she had about six weeks to live. Um, as it was, she made a year, so she got to meet Rachel when no, she was three months old. Yeah, what sort of cancer did um, she have? So she never smoked and she never drank. She couldn't afford to, but she got lung cancer. So And she'd never even been in a smoking environment. It was just a genetic lung cancer. Um, it was just at the What's point... What's the chances of that? Is it oh, really small? rare, yeah. Yeah, and we'd just gotten to the point we were all getting settled and we could have done things to pay her back for helping bring us all up on our own and we wanted to take her on these cool holidays and we were all just getting forward and established and she got diagnosed with terminal cancer I'm still furious about that and there's some really cruel um, tricks of fate sometimes um, but she lasted to see Rachel. Um, I'd also had a series of miscarriages before I got pregnant with Rachel. I'd actually been told that because they hadn't even investigated that I was clear from my early miscarriage when I was a teenager, and then I kept having them, and they thought because I'd never been checked that there'd been something wrong, and I was actually told I'd never have children. So I went through my time carrying Rachel, expecting to miss Carrie and expecting mum to die and waiting to see which one was going to die in me first. And in the end, at three months old, I got to take Rachel home and she and mum spent two weeks together. And the minute I flew out of the country to go back to California, mum went into a coma and a week later we flew back for the funeral. Um, she literally just waited to meet my daughter. Amazing. Um, Sorry about that. So it's, it's oh. pretty amazing, isn't it? What um, what people are capable of doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the time, I also wasn't in a very supportive relationship. Um, my husband, on leaving the town where I was born, with a brand new baby, and both my parents now buried in the graveyard. Your family all don't like you. You know, they think you're really aggressive. <laughs> they think you're, um, I wasn't in a very good relationship at home either. So. Um, it was a really, really low point. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other because I had a baby who was dependent on me and I had a fellowship I had to perform on. 
and luckily I had a really supportive lab and a really supportive boss and they kept me going through all of that and at the end I managed to get an international juvenile diabetes foundation fellowship and I came to Brisbane to work with David James on diabetes Yay. research we got to <laughs> And because I was born, we got Australia um, got Fiona Simpson. <laughs> I was only supposed to come for two years, but because I was born here in Adelaide, I have an Australian passport, and so that was in two thousand. I've been here for nearly twenty years now nice. because I love it. I'm you just, really great place you, to bring your you kids. You have up. to tell um, the audience about your recent discoveries and what you're doing, like and how you came to that mm. discovery. I think. That's really an amazing story and how you've managed to raise money to do that research is really quite astounding. So um, my time, first times in Australia were not easy. I ran into some people who were utter bullies mm -hmm. and the academic system doesn't really protect you from that. It often protects the bullies. But eventually I came here to the TRI and I was actually, I'd left science on an NHMRC CDA fellowship because I'd had my second baby, I wasn't supported, I weighed 30 kilos. But I decided to come back, finish my two years of fellowship and work out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I met Ian Fraser, who invented the Gardasil vaccine. And Ian Everyone's looked, heard about that, I think. <laughs> Ian looked at my CV and my track record, and he said, we're going to give you your own program, five years, support, this is your opportunity, go and do something translational. So what we've done is we went to the clinicians wow. at the PA hospital. That's so cool. I um, didn't know that. The main issue they've had is the drugs that they put in the cancer patients, the cancer patients are resistant to. One of the receptors that's targeted in head and neck cancer is called the epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR. So I come from a trafficking lab and we decided just to look to see how that receptor was getting trafficked around the cell and if that was changing this the way the, the patients, yeah, the cancer cell, if that was changing the way the patients responded to the drug. So to do that, we actually took live biopsies from the patient tumours and ran them across to our lab and did our experiments on live human tumours. We didn't grow them overnight, we didn't change them. How did you do that? We literally went, stood outside the theatre at surgery the patients had consented to giving us bits of their tumour. We grabbed the bits of the tumour, we ran back to the lab and we did the experiment on it. But how, how did, like, how Fast. Did, <laughs> so that you didn't, you mean you didn't have to create spheroids or organoids? No, no, or no, the surgeons just gave us part but, of but the how human tumour they that? just removed. But you were looking at uptake, so you just did radioactive uptake or something? No, no, we had fluorescent, fluorescent ligand uptake. And so we could see the pattern the cells and, and we how were, did you image that? How did you see on, it back? On, the, on the color focals and the, we've got a 3D So you did you section it for each after you did it? Yeah. Um, no, actually we don't even bother sectioning it. What we did was put down glass slides that have little dipped wells in them, squash them down under the glass cover slit and just image that. So when we get the tumour lump we cut it into lots of different little pieces so it's completely random as to which bit of the tumour you're looking at and every condition we do has multiple tumour lumps in it and so we can get an idea of what's happening across the whole tumour and you're only imaging the top of each little lump but we actually put photographs, we published it, the method in GID, Journal of Investigative Dermatology and we've actually put photographs of the whole way we do the method and how you make it random to make the so result did, So how real. did you come up with that concept? What made you think to do that? Did you make it up or had it been done before in your previous No. No, we just decided that if you were looking at a patient response, you should look at the patients. No, I agree, because you can't model it. Because you know? can't model it in cells and, and the, mice. And the and environment. Yeah, there's and the no shape. good model for it. And so we just went straight to the patients. And it was startling because we were looking for timing changes and kinetics. But we actually, in head and neck, it's different than some of the other cancers, but in head and neck, it's just got two patterns. Either the receptor goes in normally, as it should do, or it gets stuck. What was really weird is the receptor that's stuck on the surface of the tumour cell and isn't trafficking. After three years, we got the patient outcomes, and it turned out they were the responding patients. So that caused me huge problems because every theory and every dogma I'd learned over 25 years said it should have been the opposite way around. 
I could not fathom why the stuck pattern was the good pattern and the one where the trafficking was still working was which the is bad the one. Which it is, should have been the opposite. Which is the idea is a receptor goes in and gets ra goes round and round to get that recycled gets and get put back up so it's active yeah, again. That's, yeah. That is the dogma of how cell biology yeah. And that is actually how it works. But, but now you're in a cancer cell. But right? we had the opposite result from the patients. And so... I'm lucky enough, this is the first time I've ever actually met immunologists in my career. I'm now I'm in a whole building of them. And Ian Fraser and Ram Jenny Thomas saw my data and they said, look at this thing called ADCC. So this is where your immune cell recognizes the antibody drugs to kill the tumor cell. I'd never, literally, I'd never heard of ADCC. When I say to you, no question is a stupid question. I walked out the door and googled ADCC so I could go back in and not look completely stupid in front of Ian and Ran Jenny. I'd never heard of it. Cell biologists don't go outside the plasma membrane, no. and immune cells we hate because yes. they don't stick to anything. And so it's complex. really hard to work on. They're really complex. So, it's like the brain. So we ended up with um, James Wells, who's an immunologist, setting up these ADCC assays, and it turned out that's exactly what was causing the change in effect. Can you explain that um, more? So what's happening is that if the target of the drug is stuck on the surface of the cell, then the antibody comes in and binds it, but it's stuck there. The antibody has tails called IgG domains, and the immune system recognizes those IgG tails. So if you get enough tails on a tumor cell, the immune cells kill the tumor. It's that simple. Oh my God, it's taken us 10 years of fighting because it was not the dogma. To get this idea out. but over the last five years other people are seeing exactly what we're seeing so what we thought was we'd put the prediction pattern into hospital pathology you can predict which patients are going to respond to cetuximab by the pattern of the tumors but that takes you a mean they have to do a biopsy send them to you to look at the pattern well, or we were going to try and get into hospital pathology. No, um, but I'm just saying that's, yeah. that's the that's the high-level yeah. idea. But normally you put three different labs and they all independently validate it and none of the companies would touch it. And we're like, well, even the companies who make the antibodies, they just weren't interested. And I couldn't understand why because I was such a lightheaded innocent. And then finally one of the drug company guys who was really honest said why would we help you to develop a test that's going to lose us 85 percent of our sales it was that simple so then they wouldn't help me with the clinical trial because the lab that i worked in in america worked in a molecule called dynamin and if you block dynamin all the receptors get trapped in the cell surface so we thought instead of predicting which patients will respond why don't we make them all have the responder pattern and then we don't have to predict who's a responder we turn them all into responders such a cool idea right so then everybody told See, me this was all meant to be yeah, you know? everybody said you cannot inhibit dynamin because in fruit flies if Phil there's Robinson a that. No, well it's phil robinson i work with yeah like um, he's, he's one of my old colleagues yeah look everybody said you can't inhibit it because there's a mutation in the fruit flies drosophila that you get in your bananas and it stops synaptic vesicle recycling so in the brain. So is anyone picking up a message here? Don't believe everything <laughs> you're told. And the fruit flies go into coma. And so they said, if you do this in humans, your humans will go into coma. So one night, Phil Robinson and Adam McCloskey's business manager, not a scientist, sent me a slide that said, Fiona, I think you need to see this. And it was a chemical compound of a drug we've been using for 60 years called Stematol or Prochlorperazine. That's what people use for. And it's used to stop as an antipsychotic. It's used to stop vomiting, so you take it as travel sickness pills. It's used in psychotic cases. So you can go into the pharmacy um, and get it over the counter, guys. Yeah. Well, not at the levels we use it at. But, um, no, but yeah, yeah. people as have used in, it. At, like as a repurposing, yeah. It's, yeah. it's huge. It's used every day at high doses. By it doesn't cost have... $30,000 yeah. a, a it, time you take it. Yeah, um, it stops antipsychotic. It's an antipsychotic, it stops psychotic episodes. So here's people, and so at normally, the doses yeah, it normally inhibits the dopamine receptor in your brain. But as a side effect, it's a dynamic inhibitor. So this slide that I got at 3 o'clock in the morning, because this guy was volunteering to help me with an industry presentation to Merck in Germany, 
So he'd stayed up through the night, free of charge, to help me, and he sent me this line. And I looked at it and thought, oh my God, we can inhibit dynamic human beings because we've been doing it for years. So then, on an even bigger coincidence, Ewan Walpole, who's the lead in our clinical trials and the head of cancer services at PA Hospital, when he was a young doctor in the late 70s, he did the clinical trials to introduce Stemital to Australia. So he had the full dose range and side effect information in his cabinet across the road at the hospital. This is absolutely, so this 16, is absolutely divine intervention. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I came 16,000 kilometres to get here. I passed through a dynamic traffic in lamps on my way. Accidentally found a patient pattern that turned out to be a trafficking problem. And your mother passed from cancer, which gave you a huge, yeah. huge impetus. Ian Fraser gave me the chance. And, and he's then, got the immunotherapy right. side. Yeah, and then Ewan is sitting across the road with all the dosing data we need to go to clinical trial and in then his you have the, And then you have the drug company saying no. Right. So when the drug company said no, I went out and I talked to the people of Brisbane. And they and Avail, aged health communities and allied leisure and health who run all the pubs paid for the drugs that the company made to go into the patients on clinical trial i paid for the stemital because it was 90 dollars for the entire trial it's that cheap so these are thirty thousand dollars per patient antibodies that we were adding a five dollar per patient drug to to reverse resistance the drug companies didn't want to help us because it was coming off patent. They'd made a decision to spend no further money on it. They wanted to develop their new, what are called checkpoint inhibitors. So we got through the first part of the trial. We actually showed that we could move the receptors around in human tumours. We took pre and post biopsies from patients and showed that they had, in some cases, no target on the surface of their tumour cells that the drug could bind to. And then we gave them an IV high dose, $5 worth of drug, took another biopsy, and then you could see all the target on the surface of the tumour. We reversed that resistance pattern. Far out. That is the biggest story ever. Well, it gets better. And you haven't published this yet, have you? Oh, it's So we went back to the drug company, and we said, let us try your new drug, the checkpoint inhibitor, because it should work with that. So they gave in because I'm really stubborn and nagged them and carried on and did a podcast where if I'd mentioned them, that would have been a problem for them. Um, the podcast went viral. It was an ABC Occam's Razor she was, thing. She was on the World of Science Festival stage doing a comedy series. Three or four weeks after I did that podcast, the company got in touch and said, we'll do this with you. And I got the contract. And it turns out what we were doing works even better with their new drug. And not only... In our mouse industry, mouse models do all the tumours completely disappear, but you can't give the mice the cancer back. It won't come back. They've got immune memory. That so is just amazing. The company gave us permission to publish, even though there's some things we discovered about their drug that causes side effects. They were letting us publish anyway. That's a really important thing about academic freedom, is that if you find out there is something different about the drug company drugs, you can freely publish it. Because, you know, that's why we have academic freedom. So anyway, the company gave us permission to publish. And we have submitted the entire story. The cetuximab, the prediction, the clinical trial on the patients, the proof that we can move things around. And it's currently under review at Cell, which is the top, the top science journal in the planet, well. really. It's an impact factor of 36.6. Um, it's like one in a thousand papers go out to review and ours are out of review at the moment. We have no expectation that sales are actually going to publish this. And yeah, every morning... getting the reviews huge because yeah. you're going to get reviews too. Yeah, and look, every and morning I open my email and my heart literally stops. Yeah. Um, we've got the trial going in the patients. We're actually on the last two patients. It was a safety trial. We know it's safe. It wasn't designed for efficacy, but it looks like we're having effects anyway. And yesterday, I sat in front of the full board of the University of Queensland to um, go for my promotion to associate professor. So I've gone from a really hacky street kid cleaning out fishing boats and working in the petrol stations in the north of Scotland to being at one of the world's top universities, 
hopefully at least one day if they agree being an associate professor and running I clinical say, trials. I would, say, I would and, just forget that. And say, <laughs> I, say I don't care what anyone calls you, you're a professor to yeah, me. Driving clinical trials in, in advanced cancer patients. So, and now I've got and my son Ewan, so two beautiful children uh, as your well. Your son's called Ewan? Yeah, too. My, yeah, Ewan Walt. Is, that a, is, is that a Highland name, Scottish name? M-E-U-N, yes it is. Um, but we've got this really weird thing. So Ben Panizzo, who's the surgeon I work with, his wife's Fiona. Um, and I'm Fiona, and then Ewan Walpole's wife is Rachel, and my daughter's Rachel, and my son's Ewan. So in our team, somebody in everybody's family has somebody else's name. <laughs> That's really amazing. It's really coincidence. And, and I think the most beautiful aspect of this is, um, like, when, when you do help all these people, no matter what level of help it is, even if you can extend the life of someone, think of those three months when your daughter got to see your mother. Mm. Yeah. Think of the people that you're going to allow the same thing to happen for. So often we look at that survival rate of just a few months as, you know, what a big deal. But that's, for, your, for you, that's everything that your mother saw, Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. That absolutely, totally oh, um, brought back. I don't know if I'd have made it through if exactly. they hadn't have gotten that time. Right. So just understand, um, and, and everyone listening, is that one person can make a massive difference. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if many times in each of our lives you sit back and think, oh, I'm just one person, there's seven billion people, what can you do? Just leave it, go, don't pick up the rubbish, right? Mm -hmm. Or don't bother, what's the point? You can't change anything. But you're in just one more example of many, many, many examples of just think of the difference you made by coming back and doing that five-year fellowship with Ian and saying yes to your no and yeah. facing your fears. And but I also think of... There's so many times when I've been at a point of giving up or not making it through that something very small that somebody else has done that's just been a nice thing has kept me on track. Everybody's it's it's the well, whole world's you know, like a network. For okay, now we're going to go other. now because I'm working in neuroscience and spirituality intersections, which is really kind of out there, but. Now the woo-woo, new agey part is like, if you take a 30,000-foot view of all of that, like, mm. honestly, who else but you, in my view, could stand up to companies and drive a stemital project into these cancer patients and be so persistent? There's so few people that has that combination of your extreme brilliance and, and expertise, but the doggedness. It's like that you have to stand up against a lot of stuff. And one that takes the, a yeah, lot absolutely. of personality. One of the things I think is that if I hadn't been through everything I'd been through in my younger years, I wouldn't have had the resilience to get through what I've pushed through now. And that's the bit that we miss a lot because um, we tend to try and make things easier for our kids because we want it to be better for them than it was for us or whatever. But sometimes it's that... Well, Failures that drive yeah. the success. <laughs> I work with huge numbers of young people. I've worked with scouts, with undergraduates, with high school students. And I think the worst thing we've done for people is to, whenever something goes wrong, we step in and fix it for them. And so what happens is when kids go out on their own and they hit university and they're out there, they feel they don't know what to do if something goes wrong and then they get anxiety, and then they get agoraphobia, and it's because all the times that you learn to troubleshoot and fix things have been taken away from them. And I really think every time you fix something or clean up after somebody and don't make them do it themselves, you're taking away their, their resilience. Yes, and I'm, I'm totally guilty. <laughs> I'm totally guilty. Yeah, <laughs> I'm massively guilty. Sorry, Ella. <laughs> I totally disabled my daughter. Um, I over-responded in that regard sometimes. So, but I, I totally agree with you. And so what we're learning here is being able to sit with discomfort because when you're feeling the pain and you want to, you know, when you're feeling afraid, you just want to run for the hills. And that's totally the amygdala acting out it'll either make you sit still and want to go to sleep it'll make you want to punch someone's lights out or make you want to run for the hills yeah and so Ben what you're talking about is this sitting with that discomfort 
is training the brain, basically, and rewiring the amygdala from a total science perspective. You can actually turn that stress you, it, from the depths of despair into force. Yes. Because you can it's actually sit there too. and say, I'm not having this. Or you get to a point where you're so stressed by something you think, oh, I'm tired of being stressed by it. So I'm just going to fight it to get it finished with. Like every single morning that I open my email, waiting for that paper to come back. And the first few days you're like, oh, I don't want to open it. And then eventually you get so tired of the stress that you're like, come on, bring it on. I don't care if it's rejected anymore. I just want to not have the stress when I open my email also, in the morning. Also, we, to, to fund our research, we have to write to like federal government. And now it's got really competitive. Yeah. And so, like, that was my experience yesterday. Yeah, you know, the NFCs. <laughs> not for further consideration. So this NFCs. year they culled 66% of the grants straight up without even reviewing them. Normally it's about 50%. Yeah, we're down to 7% funding rate. You've got a 7 in 100 chance of actually getting your grant funded. And the quality of the grants... It's going up Because so it's high. the people that have survived the previous <laughs> bad funding is just enormous. I just sat on a panel for a charity... Um, where every single one of those Australian-led grants was phenomenal. A few, a while before that, I'd done a UK cancer charity, and because they fund a lot more research, the differences in quality. So now you've got these Australian scientists who are operating at absolutely global levels of quality, but only 7% of them are getting funded. Um, so, yeah. So that's if, why we need to... If you're not alternative ways yeah. to fund all of this important If, if you're not utterly resilient and an entrepreneur in science just now, then you're kind of dead in the water. So, yeah. Really? Well, I think that you guys have done an amazing job listening. And, Fiona, I just think your story is outstanding. I think it's going to offer a lot of hope to so many people that struggle or think that they can't do something. And so what I'd like to do when I finish the podcast is to for you to offer – a quote or a word of wisdom or something that you can project out into the universe that you think has helped you to persist or help others? Oh, there's so many, but one thing I'd say is every time you're nice to somebody else, you have no idea what effect that's going to have through a whole lifetime. And it can be as simple as like just holding someone's hand. Yep, absolutely. So thank you for holding my hand today. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us all. And holding all these beautiful, <laughs> beautiful people's hands. I'm I going to iterate. What's the name of your scholarship fund? Um, this is the Woodridge. It's the Diamantina Ignite Scholarship Fund, but the Woodridge, Woodridge School Project. And why particularly Woodridge did that happen? So um started with some teachers there contacting us, and we went down to talk to the school about STEM. We've changed the STEM involvement at the school from 15 to 50% over the years. Um, but what we discovered is that there are students at Woodridge who have backgrounds, like they've come from camps in Tanzania and um, in various places, immigration camps where there's no schooling, no medical care, where they don't hold a pencil until they're 15 years old. They are taken in by Australia they learn English and they're getting OP ones and twos in science. So wow. maths, physics, chemistry, biology. Amazing. Their English is sometimes a little bit behind, which actually halts their university entry. But I think if you come from that background and you do well in those science subjects with that opportunity, then those students should be given every single opportunity we can possibly give them because their minds are brilliant. And so that's why we particularly set up the Woodridge scholarships and also because we couldn't afford many. So we've focused on one school. We'd like someday to spread it to more schools. That's such a great thing. Um, but the other thing is that... And Australians need more um, active back. young people pursuing science, even yeah. though it's difficult on the funding side but it's still really important for lots of other reasons. The other thing that's really important with these um, these students is that they're that bright and when they write their letters for the scholarships 
mostly they're so grateful for having been taken into the country and for having been given opportunities of education and health, that what they want to do is give back to the country. So if you've got these brilliant science and maths minds who are desperate to benefit Australia, why would you not support them? It's, it's just logic. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Fiona. Thanks so much. And Dr. Simpson, I'm looking forward to calling you Professor Simpson in the next <laughs> podcast. So thank you, thank you everyone. You don't only I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't only Don't say I can't go with other boys. And don't tell me what to do. Change me in any way You don't own me Don't tie me down Cause I'd never stay